All right, we've got the news coming up shortly. So, uh, but making the news, Terry Lynn McClintock, no longer in this healing lodge in Saskatchewan. Uh, it's a great day, I would say, not just for talk radio, but of course for uh, jurisprudence or justice. If it's to be uh, seen to be done as much as anything else, then uh, she did not deserve to live in a relative life of ease and comfort there in this healing lodge. The family said that. Every conscientious Canadian would have signed on for that. And so now she's been moved. Let's get the implications of that and many more stories dealing with the law. Joe Newberger is 640's legal expert with Newberger and Partners, and he's joined us here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Joe, how you doing? I'm great, John. How are you? Likewise, fine. All right, this transference from the Indigenous Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan to a women's prison in Edmonton. Right. Uh, I guess, you know, it's just uh, something. I'm surprised it had to be uh, petitioned and uh, there had to be some kind of suasion exerted by mass outrage and so on and so forth. Uh, What was your thought on that matter? Did you think Ralph Goodell uh, really was, as he claimed, uh, my word, impotent in doing anything? It rested with uh, Correction Service Canada. And, I mean, how was this remediated then? Well, we we sort of discussed this before. So... um Goodale, he, he himself would not be in a position to override and affect the transfer. He would have to speak to uh, corrections, and it would have to go through proper channels so that there's not inappropriate influence. That being said, um, the, the department that he represents would have also had the ability, as I said, to do some sort of review on this. And it seems to me that because of the public outcry, uh, I think people within the institution who have made this decision uh, had some better thought about it and then uh, affected to change because they can they can move. It's an administrative decision within the facility itself and within corrections. They can move inmates between levels of security or different facilities based upon risk and other qualifying issues. So this is totally within their ambit, and they did the right thing in this case. What else was curious to me is, according to Correction Service Canada, this was a couple of weeks ago when they came out and said that somebody uh, is uh, able to self-identify. And we know that's contained in the uh, Human Rights Code here in Ontario and I guess across the country. Self-identification. She identified as an Aboriginal. Her uh, stepbrother denied that outright, said she is no more, and this is paraphrasing, an Aboriginal than I'm a green man from Mars. Is that really something that people are allowed to do to self-identify? I mean, it sounds to me like she was gaming the system. Yeah, it's troubling to me. Now, I understand why you need some latitude to have somebody be able to self-identify, because in some instances, it's hard to get the the evidence to confirm the uh, heritage uh, to an, an Indigenous community. And and sometimes we can't, people are justifiably uh, in need of the services that are offered through special units or special programs. But the challenge is it can't be open and abused. And, and, and you know, I may be at crosshairs with people in the Indigenous community or lawyers in that regard because they'll feel that somehow that this will unduly restrict the ability of people to access those services. But in my opinion, we also have to be capable of providing those services to people who are of the Indigenous community and in desperate need because of their own circumstances. And so it plays on both sides. So I find it difficult where you have somebody who self-identifies, and it can be quite obvious that there really is no linkage uh, to that community. And so I think that needs to be modified to some extent in order to ensure 
the proper services go to the proper people. And that doesn't mean that somebody like McClintock couldn't access other important services for her, but not this way. Again, with Joe Newberger, 640 legal expert, let me ask you about this case, Marco Musso, uh, going up for parole yesterday, uh, day parole and full parole, denied in both instances in Gravenhurst, uh, two years into a 10-year sentence for uh, killing the four people with the Neville Lake family. The interesting uh, question that arose there is, uh, you know, that he still had not taken responsibility for his problems with alcohol, and, you know, he had cited, well, uh, only on occasion it takes him eight or nine drinks to get wasted. Uh, I'm just thinking if this was the linchpin that denied him parole, is it possible he was not adequately prepared by a parole officer who apparently advocated for him? There were people who were advocating for his early release. Well, you know, if he spoke the truth, that's a good thing, because I'd, I'd rather have him speak the truth and be prepared. Because the reality is, when uh, serving a sentence, there is access to assessments to determine what type of programs the individual requires, including substance abuse. And if an individual who's been involved in such a horrific offense, uh, causing such horrific damage, uh, does not access or avail themselves of substance abuse programming, in particular alcohol abuse programming, and doesn't develop a robust insight into why drinking uh, was not only a significant factor uh, in his offending and destroying this family, then we should be concerned, and the board appropriately would be grounding their finding in, one, in, in a lack of insight and that there is risk here. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, forget about preparing him. It's better that he speaks the truth and now gets the treatment that he requires. Yeah, you know, I just thought that was kind of uh, an interesting aspect to it. Like, the takeaway yeah. was he still doesn't get it, but you would yeah. think working two years with, you know, a parole officer and people who are uh, entrusted with trying to remediate his situation, they might have, you know, helped him along to uh, recognize that. But apparently two years in, still not the case. Yeah, I, 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 it's an excellent point you raise. I mean, it, it's quite stunning the way that came out. And I'm absolutely sure that people in the facility worked with him and he was assessed. But I don't know where it went awry, but it did. Yeah. Finally, Joe, I've got to ask you, because uh, this story came up earlier in the week, uh, where I guess the Chief Justice of the Superior Court in the province uh, just went off the rails in a good way, suggesting that too many cases are not being heard or facilitated or expedited because there's a lack of justices. I think there's a waiting list of six alone in Ontario or in Toronto and and nine across the province. Uh, How serious an issue is this? It's it's serious. I mean, every time I appear in Superior Court before uh, a particular justice, one of them who runs the complex trial list, you know, you, you hear him saying all the time uh, a, a lament about how they are short judges. And I think, frankly, six is charitable. It, they need more like 12. Um, and and they need some judges with some serious criminal experience so that they're able to jump in and take on some of these complex trials uh, so that there's a shorter learning curve. And I don't mean any disrespect to somebody who's appointed out of, uh, you know, uh, commercial litigation or family law or anything in that regard. But uh, there's a bit of a learning curve when you have to do a, a murder trial or you have to do, um, you know, a complex fraud case. And having, you know, good, solid criminal experience makes you a rather good candidate for that. And there is a significant shortage. The positions are not being 
filled in a timely manner. There's lots of outstanding qualified candidates available, and it's something that needs to to be changed quickly so that the courts can function at a much more efficient manner. Yeah, it's what you were saying because uh, the Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, was saying you can't just, like, slot somebody in. There is a learning curve on the more serious uh, crimes, and so she says she's working hard to uh, fulfill these uh, vacancies. But the question is whether a lot of cases are getting tossed now because of lack, you know, they say justice yeah. delayed, justice denied. There's that Chauli case out of Quebec, I think, in 2006, where, you know, it takes too long, then see you later, it's uh, quashed. Is that happening? It, it, it's not an epidemic again. I mean, there's there are cases that get um, stayed because of delay. But again, you'd be you'd be hearing a lot of this in the media about those cases. And the judges who are in our Superior Court in Toronto are doing a very good job of triaging what needs to go, and they are getting cases on. And if a particular accused is saying, my 11B rights are at risk, I can tell you that the courts are doing everything they can to expedite those trials. And, you know, there is a hierarchy of seriousness, and and they work very hard on doing that, as do the Crown attorneys. And frankly, you see defense lawyers trying to cooperate as best they can with scheduling as well. Interesting. The legal profession is now adopting the term triage. <laughs> it's, oh, it's been around for a while now. <laughs> oh, has it? Okay. I always thought it was something I ascribed to emergency departments and hospitals, but it's now happening in the court system, too. Absolutely. All right. Very enlightening. Joe, as always, appreciate your time. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Have a great show. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, 640 legal expert with Newberger and Partners.